Hello and welcome to Found. I'm your host, Daryl Etherington. This is the TechCrunch podcast where we bring you the stories behind the startups from the founders who are building them. I'm here with my co-host who is not in Austin, Texas, which is where I am. You should be thankful for that, Becca. (laughs) (laughs) I am always thankful to not be in Texas. I actually (laughs) say that every morning. (laughs) Now listen, Texan listeners, no offense. We love you. No, no offense. (laughs) But also full offense. Just some housekeeping before we get started. So first of all, we always appreciate it if you rate and review the show on your podcast platform of choice. That really helps us a lot. And also, we would love if you would come see us at Early Stage, which is happening on April 20th, and that's in Boston. If you haven't yet registered, you can get a discount. You can use code FOUND just the name of the podcast, for 40% off on founder and investor passes. So again, that's happening April 20th in person in Boston. Okay, so let's get to today's show. We're talking to Angela Hoover, who is the co-founder and CEO of Andy, a search chatbot that answers questions, navigates, and searches the web to provide what they consider to be the most straightforward answer without any ads or SEO gaming going on. Just a side note, since I did mention that I'm in South by Southwest when we're recording this intro, Andy is all over the place here. It seems they've bought up a lot of sponsorships, so just an interesting kind of tie-in. But yeah, let's go ahead and get to the conversation with Angela. Hey, Angela, how's it going? Good. How are you, Daryl? Doing very well. So we're here to talk about your company. Well, Also your journey as a founder, but uh, also your company, Andy. So do you want to give our listeners just a basic TLDR of what it is that Andy does? Yes, love it. Andy is search for the next generation using generative AI. So instead of a list of links, Andy gives you answers like chatting with a smart friend. Nice. And basically the way that it works is we use natural language processing to understand the query intent. And then we take the top 10 to 20 results And we combine that with a language model to give you a direct answer to your question. Cool. Well, it's a a great, very straightforward answer. I feel like there's a lot to untangle there, especially because we've just seen, you know, Microsoft dip its toe into this a bit with incredibly interesting results. I think someone's probably writing a thesis already on what's happening with Microsoft and Bing and their uh, chat GPC integration. But yeah, like what made you want to do this? And was it just kind of, the general atmosphere around chat, or did you start this before there was this chat GPT gold rush? Or tell us a bit about the origin story. Thanks. Yeah, it's actually pretty interesting. I like to say that we were doing generative AI before generative AI was cool. Nice. We launched our generative answers in March of 2022. Oh, cool. And so right from the beginning, Andy's been around for two years, we have always been conversational and chat-based. And that's a really like, strong part of our thesis. We think definitely the future of search is going to be conversational and that really Gen Z as well just wants direct answers to their questions. Mm-hmm. So it's been super exciting to see you know, Microsoft and Google kind of validating this idea that, yes, this is what the next generation of search looks like. For sure. I, th- I think that results aside, it's like the appetite is obvious, right? So like the thing of like, how is it actually performing now is kind of a side question. It's like it seems like you're right. Like it's proved out like it's inevitable. This is the way people want to interact with their search engines. And therefore someone has to figure out the solution, right? Which is great that you're engaged in that. And then you're also like starting from there as opposed to being like, oh, well, let's figure this out and tack this on to this thing we already have. Cause it means 
presumably you can build it into your the existential sustainability model. Like the big challenge for Google is they basically have to change the way they think about advertising and their partners and content and everything else. But you, I imagine, don't have to think about that. But have you thought about that already? Like you're very early on in your career. Have you thought about sustainability and revenue? Yeah, that's a great question and such a great point that, you know, we don't face the same incumbents of having this huge ad revenue model. So for Andy, we really have been thinking about paid pro plans down the line Mm. and then as well as an enterprise API, because we've had like over 30 companies reach out to us about, you know, wanting to have a chat based search either on the front end of their UX for their users to search their website Uh. or even on the back end for searching their own internal data. So nice. I think that's a pretty interesting business model. Yeah. It is. And I also, like, I had another question, which was selfish. If your model succeeds, my model kind of dies. <laughs> Mine and Becca's. Like, are publishing things to a website and hoping people find that through search and then click through and come to it? Because I don't think this is a secret. Like, the vast majority of our traffic comes from search and probably always has, right? Yeah, but, but if we integrated it into our own site and made it like its own sort of dedicated resource that was highly searchable and conversational, that sounds like it could be an interesting path for publications. Yeah, and just like, I complain to no end about how bad internal search is on sites. Inc- oh, our search is awful. You don't even just are, it's just everywhere. <laughs> it's crazy, you'll type in the exact name of or the headline and it still won't come up and I'm like what are you looking for so I, with you saying that there's a business case to use it in sort of an internal way I'm like oh man I wish we had that yesterday <laughs> yeah no kidding well I'm actually so happy you guys brought this up too because one of the things that we think is not going away is great content online and you know, we really think the best part of the web is actually the content creators, right? And the content producers. And so for Andy, what we want to do is share revenue 50-50. And I think that, you know, when you're generating answers to questions, you have to give credit where credit is due. So that means, you know, good citations and saying, where does the source actually come from? And then also sharing revenue with content producers. Mm -hmm. Nice. Yeah, I think that would go a long way to alleviating fears, right? Because if there's one thing media is good at, it's existential dread, which, you know, we have in spades and we continue to have every day. (laughs) And bad search bars. (laughs) And also terrible search bars, yeah. And Becca, you're still right, because I I was thinking mainly about the, like, the consumer-facing case, like the reader-facing case, but absolutely our back end is... It's like a like you have to learn it. You have to learn its ways, and then even then, it's not gonna like really perform for you. It's just like, well, maybe I'll type this in, and then something will come up that's useful. But usually not, right? Like yeah. generally, we just steer clear. No, on the consumer <laughs> side as well. I mean, I complain about this to no end on LinkedIn specifically, where it's like you'll type mm, in someone's yeah. exact name on LinkedIn, and the search results will be like, well, did you actually mean to spell this totally different name? And did you mean this totally different person? And I know like that happens on Instagram, but I assume that's because they're trying to point you to accounts that like make them money. Sure. But on LinkedIn, it's just like, I'm typing this person's name exactly. Please, I'm begging you, just show me the right <laughs> profile. I can't type it any differently. If I'm doing it correctly yeah. to begin with. But yeah. something I was curious about is kind of taking a step back. I know you talked a little bit about what the idea was at the beginning, but you decided to sort of take that idea and start a company. Like what compelled you that you were like, this was going to become the next thing for you? And what was that journey like of having this idea and then starting to build the company around it? Absolutely. It's funny because I actually dropped out of college to start Andy. So my journey started 
in the Denver airport. That's where I met my co-founder, Jed. Yeah, I was curious <laughs> about that. I read that in the notes. I was like, I've definitely never met someone in my life at the airport, so I have, I have questions. <laughs> yeah, it's a, an incredibly serendipitous <laughs> way to meet your co-founder, but um, I think that speaks to just what founding a company and chasing your dreams is all about. Like, luck just comes together. So mm-hmm. me and Jed met at the Denver airport, and one of the first conversations we had actually was about search and how broken search has become. He's Australian. I had lived in Australia for a year, so that was also one of the connection points. For me, being Gen Z, really, it's just about like not being able to find what I need online. Like mm. Between the ads and the SEO spam, like it's just hard to find what you're actually looking for. And also thinking about how am I actually spending time searching? Like For me, I spend 80% of the time on my phone. And when I'm on my phone, I'm always in visual feeds and chat apps. And so right. when we were thinking about what does a new search engine look like? Those two ideas just stuck out as incredibly apparent. Like it has to be conversational because everybody's spending time on their phone and it has to be visual because, you know, a picture's worth a thousand words. Mm -hmm. Fast forward eight months, Jed had built out the back end and he was like, hey, I actually want you to come on full-time as co-founder. Like, let's do this thing. Yeah. So I dropped out of college and we did YC Startup School. Mm -hmm. which helped us like immensely just learn about how to actually start a company because I had no idea. And then also getting into YC definitely helped our journey. And it's just the most fun space to be working in. Like, Mm -hmm. Wait, take a step back though. He built out the company and then asked you to join as a co-founder. So did he steal your idea originally? Or (laughs) did you guys like talk about doing a company and then we're like, okay, now it's legit. Well, he Look, all out- ideas are free. <laughs> <laughs> he built out the back end of the product. So we had like basically our really scrappy MVP is what we had when we did YC Startup School. Is that what was what Lazy Web? What was called Lazy Web? Is that what it was? Yeah, that was Lazy Web. That's a great moniker because it's like, you know, it is the behavior of like just whatever Google is for me or whatever, right? Like, I don't want to do it. I want you to do it and then parse the results and then provide it back to me. But I see why that is such a compelling idea, but like, what do you think about, is it just the incumbent price and cost of why this doesn't already exist, right? Because you must suspect that like Google and Google product managers look at this and go like, we know this is what people want in terms of user behavior. Is it just because they have to balance it with like, we built this stupid SEO ad engine on the other side? Yeah, I think that there's multiple parts to it, right? Like Google recently said that language models are language models, not knowledge models. And I do agree with that, actually. And so I think everybody's trying to figure out how do you combine search results with the power of an LLM to actually give a high quality answer? Because Mm -hmm. LLMs are famous for making stuff up. And so if you have an LLM that's just hallucinating the answers, that doesn't help the end user at all. Right. And so I think that the way that people are positioning it is like, okay, maybe this is more of like a content sidekick that helps you, you know, creative thoughts and processes like that, Mm -hmm. as opposed to actually doing factual question answering. But at Andy, we really believe that you can do factual question answering. You know, we've been working on this for the past year. We kind of know what the pitfalls are of how do you in practice do that. And I think that maybe that's also like the practitioner's approach versus like the academic's approach. Mm -hmm. I think in terms of like, why these bigger companies maybe are pressing the brakes is just because factual Q&A is really difficult. Right. It's a hard problem to solve. So what is, can you take us into a little bit of like how you are approaching solving that? Because it just seems like a massive challenge. And yeah, we've seen a bunch of attempts that 
have fallen short. I mean, the Bing had their big event, and then the big thing right after that was like, oh, there's factual errors in like every single slide they used at the presentation, which was like a bit of a, you know, they kind of fell flat on their face with that. So how do you kind of avoid that, and how do you build it so that the model is clean or like provides results that are actually trustworthy? I think it's definitely like a do things that don't scale approach. Hmm. There's two groups in the AI community. One group is that like the bigger the model, the bigger, the better, you know, the more data that you ingest into the LLM, the better that it's going to become. So say that some of these new LLMs that are coming out would be trained on data up to 2023, then maybe it would be able to answer every question correctly. But at Andy, we actually believe that it's about finely curated small data sets and kind Hmm. of small data beats big data. And then mm-hmm. also having, you know, specific fine-tuned models for search verticals, as opposed to just trying to do like one huge LLM for every question. That totally makes sense because I think scale does seem like it'll be like, well, if you parse like all of the knowledge, like on average, you will arrive at sort of truthfulness. But I don't know what the basis in like reality is for that, because it seems like mass information is a, like rife with errors. Like the larger you get in terms of like data sets, it's like there are more errors occurring, not less. But yeah, I don't know. But so it's, it does make a lot of ton of sense to do that curated approach. But you, as you mentioned, it doesn't scale. Are you thinking ahead to like, how do you solve that problem at scale? Or is that kind of a, we'll get to that when we get to that problem. Because that is, you know, it's very common practice for startups to be like, well, do this now and then we'll figure out backwards like how that scales up. Yeah, we like to say that we're like broad but shallow right now. Mm. So I think that the scaling process is just building out each vertical one at a time. Right. Are there ones you're focused on right now, like to priority verticals that you're starting with? Yeah, coding questions and then research-based questions. So we've gotcha. figured out that our target market is like techie Gen Z. So picture like a computer science graduate. And we just talk with our users very closely and figure out what are the types of questions that they actually are looking for answers to. And mm-hmm. then focusing on you know those specific intents. Yeah, and I'm curious about how you guys are vetting, if you're doing this sort of small data approach, how are you guys vetting these potential data sets then to use? Because mm. obviously when you do sort of the big approach, oh, we take in all data and like build it off of that, there's obviously less like picking and choosing less choice. So how do you guys decide how to build this out and how to train a model that is approaching it in this slightly different way? I love this question. It's definitely, you know, figuring out what are keystone examples of high quality versus low quality content. We know that, you know, if you train an LLM or a smaller model, even on like Reddit examples or examples from Twitter, you know that you're going to get that style of question answering versus if you train it on like Pulitzer Prize winning articles, things like that, then that type of content is going to produce a very different um, phrasing of the type of question answering that it does. So I really think it's about feeding the LLM like the highest quality content in order to get a better answer. And it's definitely a do things that don't scale approach. Like <laughs> it's me and my co-founder picking currently the data sets that we ingest into Andy. So, But it sounds like you're, you're relying on external signals basically that the quality is high already, right? Which makes a ton of sense. Like, oh, prize winning, but Pulitzer Prize, like recognized body, journalistic body saying this is a high quality signal, right? Totally. And I think that we do that, you know, when we're searching sure, ourselves, yeah. you know, like if I see an article from TechCrunch, I'm like, I know this is going to be good. Oh, or, well, you, know. you don't need to say that. <laughs> 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 but, you know, when you're searching online, you look at what is the source? Do I trust the source? And I think that that, again, isn't going away, even as we have like 
these question answering models, mm-hmm. the source is incredibly important. Nice. Except eventually the source will just all be ChatGPT, ChatGPT six. <laughs> <laughs> I'm I'm saying two generations and we're done. All of us. <laughs> Well, it is crazy because large language models like their own content. So when an LLM sees content that it's like generated, it's like, oh, I do want to use that. So and again, that's another that's another problem to solve. That's another you know, yeah, uh, difficult area. That makes a ton of sense, right? Because it's like, oh yeah, like based on the rules that have been set for me, like this looks great because it was generated based on those rules, right? I never thought about that self preferencing other AI chatbots. That's another big problem. I'll get somebody on that. I'm going to go put it in the newsroom right now. (laughs) Someone go write this. (laughs) Angela, I'm curious about, just for you personally, like when did you suspect or know that you wanted to be an entrepreneur? Like what was your journey to becoming a startup founder yourself? Did you always want to do it or did you know nothing about it or somewhere in between? Yeah. So, I mean, I've always had an entrepreneurial itch, but... To be honest, I didn't think that somebody like me could become a founder. Um, that's why I credit Y Combinator so much, and especially Startup School, because they really did give me this huge opportunity. So my founding story is a bit unconventional. When I was 18, I graduated high school, didn't know what I wanted to do for college, but found out about an opportunity to live and work in Australia. Nice. I moved out there on a work visa. At the time, I thought I wanted to be a civil engineer. And so I actually got a job working as a construction laborer. Wow. Yeah, it was it was a pretty crazy time. But I ended up working my way up, got a couple different promotions, and then ended up getting hired on as a site coordinator at a large construction management company. Mm-hmm. And they were building a data center in Sydney. And I ended up getting hired from BGIS to DCI, which was the data center management company. And so through that, I had the opportunity to work with Microsoft. And that was kind of my introduction into tech. And I realized that, you know, construction and technology are all about building things. And that's what I really love doing. And so that was my background before starting Andy. And I've always loved technology. Like I think that also the idea of Jarvis from Iron Man or Samantha from her, I think everybody gets excited by that, right? Yes, yeah. But it was really YC Startup School that, gave me the opportunity and then getting into Y Combinator definitely changed the game for Andy. Wow. Yeah, that's cool. That's, yeah, I think a very unconventional path in. Yeah, so you're like, you're doing the site management at the construction site. And then they were like, well, do you want to go manage this data center as well? Like that's, it's quite the leap. So I guess it's similar skill sets. It just seems like a very different kind of world one to the other. Totally. And I actually think it fits very well with being a founder because Mm. as a founder, like every day you're just thrown a bunch of challenges and it's like, just figure it out. Yeah. Like, (laughs) you know, just figure out how to do it. And so that was kind of my work experience is like, how do you solve a problem? And nobody gives you the instructions. You just have to know what to do and, you know, trial and error. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I'm curious now thinking about building, I know we mentioned this a little bit earlier, everything happening with Microsoft and open AI, but you mentioned you guys were kind of around and starting to work on this significantly before that. And what is it like to kind of work on this company? You have this idea, you're working to build it up, and then all of a sudden a big name like Microsoft OpenAI comes in and like now everyone's talking about it. And I'm sure this was something you guys were building when everyone wasn't talking about it. And what's it been like being able to adjust as the public perception is changing while you're still building the company at the same time? Yeah, I think that it's just really exciting. It's a huge opportunity 
again, seeing that, you know, when I was pitching search with chatbots back in March of 2022, people were like, why would I chat with a chatbot to search? And I think that when you're on the cutting edge of a new technology, there's always two camps of people. There are some people that are like, hey, love the search results, but I just want it to look like Google. Mm -hmm. And then there were other groups of users who were like, you have to go deeper on the conversational interface. And like, you have to go deeper into this idea of a chatbot as your search assistant. And so now to see that ChatGPT launching, all of these different conversational interfaces and searches coming out, it's really just like, hey, this is what consumers want and it's exciting. Yeah. One thing about that that is interesting is like, there's always these cycles in tech, right? And we had kind of a chatbot cycle, I want to say like three or four years ago, but like there's companies like here in Toronto, there's this company, Ada, that's still successful and they did like customer support sort of chatbot thing. But there was a lot of attempts of like, let's make this interface modal work because people really love it. You know, it followed the development of things like WhatsApp and things like iMessage and like people just, this is the way that they communicate all the time, right? But then that kind of like, evened out, I would say, and then gave way to other additional modals or things like the metaverse or whatever as like the hot new thing. So what do you think about this in terms of stickiness this time around and in terms of what the ingredients are that are different that maybe make this more sustainable, I would say? Yeah, definitely. You know, when people had tried to do these like AI assistants before, I don't think the technology was there. Mm. And, you know, Large language models only really got popular in 2019. So it's something that's pretty recent. Right. And I will definitely say that LLMs are one of the key ingredients in order to be able to do generative search results like this. So I think that that is kind of played into why now is the time where it actually is going to become sticky. This idea has been around for a while, but think about Ask Jeeves even. Like people yeah, have gotten yeah. excited about the idea of like a personal search assistant. But now I do think that we are actually at the time where it's possible. And now the biggest challenge is nailing factual accuracy. Mm -hmm. Or we could just give that up entirely. That's another <laughs> option I've been thinking mm. about. Do you think about that when you're like <laughs> editing our stories at work? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm like, eh, it's close enough. <laughs> no, I don't know. I think like, I just thought it was so interesting, like socially watching the reaction to the Microsoft one. Because mm. there were a lot of people who were just like, you could tell just loved engaging with it. They didn't care that it was going off the rails and giving like totally bonkers answers. It was just kind of like, this is so compelling. And Microsoft, I think to their credit, has kind of embraced that part of it. They were like, oh, look, like people are using Bing for the first time ever in the history of Bing, even though it's been around for 20 years. Maybe we'll just keep some of that flavor in there. So what do you think about that balance? Like, do you think people are looking for personality? I mean, obviously, if you want, to have a search engine, I was joking before, you do want factual accuracy to be goal number one, but does it come with this other element that is starting to emerge, which is like personality or a sense of like identity or something? Oh, 100%. Hmm. I mean, I think it's the Eliza effect, right? Like everybody wants to believe that there's an intelligence on the other end of the conversation actually interacting yeah. with you. And so for us, like we've just been trying to stay focused on giving a useful product to our consumers. So whatever helps them the most throughout their day searching, that's what we're trying to build. But I think that it is really fun, this idea of like, give it some personality. You know, companies like Character AI even, I think are really interesting mm -hmm. because there is that innate feeling inside most people that they want to interact and have this personality on the other end of the chat. 
Yeah, I think so. I think there's something there. And I think that I've seen it too. I used to cover automotive and like a bunch of car companies tried to make that a key ingredient of their like user experience for the in-car setting. And again, I think it was one of those things where, like you said, with chatbots, like the technology wasn't necessarily there, but it may be there soon. Although you don't want your car to develop like a personality disorder if it has control over key systems, I guess. (laughs) You just wrote like the next like lifetime horror movie. The smart car gone wrong. (laughs) Most of what this podcast is for is for me to generate like treatments and then I put them in my notebook and never touch them again. <laughs> so like you were talking about the other assistants like from her and, and uh, I forget what the other one you mentioned was, but like did the name, how did you come up with the name for the company? Because my theory, here's my theory. Mm-hmm. You can tell me if I'm right or wrong. Is it's A and I like artificial and intelligence and then the nd is just kind of in there but that's probably not right but tell us what the real origin story is for the company i like that i like that i can go with that no (laughs) (laughs) so andy's short for android oh yeah and it is an acronym short for artificial neural directed intelligence oh okay cool wow but really the reason we changed the name to andy is because we are talking with our users as you mentioned we were previously lazy web yeah, and yeah. Um, we liked the name Lazy Web because, you know, there was a Twitter call out and, you know, everybody would always say, hey, Lazy Web, when they couldn't find their questions on Google. So we thought it was a good name. But our users told us Lazy has a negative connotation and Web sounds old. You know, what you guys are working mm, on is the true. next thing. Yeah. And so yeah. they're like, you've got to change the name. And so we just started playing around with this idea of Andy. And we think Andy is also gender neutral. So I definitely believe that, like, you know, you want to have a name for your personal assistant in the future and so that's how andy came about that's cool and do you think about like what is the long-term goal do you think it becomes that thing where it is kind of like an all-encompassing personal assistant or what is the eventual ideal end state for andy look like i guess it's pretty interesting to think about because you know we're a search startup but our dream is to build jarvis and so that's when you get Mm. you expand out into this thing where it's like is it even search anymore? You know, it's a personal assistant, like this idea of being able to perform tasks on your behalf or even being, you know, kind of like an entertaining friend. Right. And I think that it will continue to morph into something like that. So we're starting with search and trying to be, you know, like factually accurate, visual and conversational, but definitely with an eye towards actually how does Andy help you like automate some of the day-to-day monotonous tasks in your life. And something I'm curious about, like watching how people have used OpenAI and some of the other stuff that's come out this year, is so far it seems like a lot of it is for fun. Like people are asking it silly little questions or people are trying to like stump it or trying to like, I mean, people are just asking the most exploits. Yeah, the most bizarre stuff. And I'm curious kind of how you think about getting customers and consumers to actually switch to using this like as their actual search engine like oh i'm on chat gpt i'm saying this cute thing about what restaurant in some random city i've never been to is the best for a first date but how are you thinking about capturing that consumer when they're going to look up say the hours for a local place or say something you would be like a very traditional google search how will you think about getting people to kind of switch that consumer behavior absolutely for us it's been really important to try to combine the old and the new So we strongly believe that search results on their own aren't going away. Like direct answers to your questions are important, but then sometimes depending on the question, you do want to dive deeper into results. Or, you know, if it's when is my you know favorite restaurant going to be open, sometimes you want to see the listing. And so I actually think it's about combining 
both. And that's why you'll notice on Andy, we have that chat panel, but then we have visual results. So you can kind of dive deeper. And yeah, I don't think that great content online or, you know, individual web pages are going away. I think that it really is about meshing them together. Yeah, I think that's probably, well, I hope that's right because at least until I don't care anymore because I'm dead. I don't know. <laughs> Dark Daryl. <place>. Daryl. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, I think like when you think about these personalities and the other things, like I feel like that could become a future state, right? Where it's like essentially personalities interacting with other personalities in a different kind of web. Like you ask Andy for something and then Andy's like, oh, let me go ask TC or whatever, right? Which would be our cool name. And then the TechCrunch thing comes in and talks to you in a different voice with a different attitude and personality, but delivers like all the results, like fed by our content, right? Which would be good, I think. I don't know. Scary? Good? I think good. But yeah, that's me when I'm in my optimistic mode about like what the future could look like. Yeah. I I love the idea of chatbots talking to other chatbots and then, you know, doing most of the work for us. Yeah, and you're a part of the conversation, right? It's like, yeah, that's a great human augmentation as opposed to human replacement, right? Yeah, I think it's not about, you know, AGI necessarily. It's not about building yeah. a super intelligence. Technology's at its best when it's like helping the end user. It's about the combination of us and the chatbot. And I, no, that's not <laughs> anything. <laughs> <laughs> I'm pointing that. Yeah, go for yeah. it. Use it. I, I don't think it's good. So I wouldn't bring that into the <laughs> rooms. But if you want, you can have it for free. I do want to ask about just the company building too, especially as Becca and I've alluded to before with all these competitors. Like, How challenging is it as you're trying to scale and ramp up on the kind of staffing side? Is there a lot of expertise out there? Is there extreme competition for it? How have you found that process so far? Yeah, I'm just in the beginning phases of hiring. But to be honest, I think that there's a lot of great talent and there's kind of a gold rush right now of people Mm. wanting to work in this area. I think that Andy is very well positioned for hiring and it's just exciting to see. I mean, there's a lot of energy around generative AI right now yeah. and people want to be a part of it. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's a lot of like roles too, right? Like there's the prompt engineer is such an interesting role that has come up recently that I feel like has a lot of potential and also could like, you don't need to be an, a programmer to become a prompt engineer. Like you could be an English major or a political science major or whatever. Like it's kind of domain expertise wins out, but what are you looking for? Like what is the talent you're trying to hire? Yeah. I think early on for a founding full stack engineer, you kind of need a jack of all trades, yeah. but then absolutely, as you said, uh, prompt engineering is becoming like increasingly important. And then as well, I think a great UX. So it's mm-hmm. kind of interesting because working in this space, it's like, Nobody's done this before. So there are so many different roles that it's like, you know, how do you build a conversational UX that combines the old and the new? We're still figuring that out. How do you build the back end? Like, how do you actually build these things at practice and at scale? Like you said, there's lots of new jobs that weren't previously even on the job market that are becoming available. It's pretty... uh, it's pretty cool, really. Yeah. Especially is. with thinking about hiring, what you mentioned earlier, so much of this business, and intentionally so, is stuff that isn't easy to scale, like really making sure you've got quality and that kind of stuff for the sources and feeding the model. 
And with that being said, how do you think about hiring with that goal without becoming like super capital heavy, without having to become like a really big company mm-hmm. with a ton of people? Finding the balance between that scale and like keeping that quality without like overloading on having just like a ton of staff to do so. Yeah, I appreciate bringing this up. We've definitely approached it as a pre-product market fit and a post-product market fit world. And so we strongly believe that small teams can build great things. And I think that when you look back on like some of the famous companies like Apple and Google, they both got started with teams of two. Mm -hmm. I think that it's actually really important to figure out building a great product before you try to scale up. Mm -hmm. And we're definitely in that stage. And also, I think that Andy has figured out how to do this cost effectively. One of the ways that we do that is actually using an ensemble approach for LLMs. So depending on the type of question, you don't always have to send it to the most expensive model. Sure. I mean, that's another interesting point to bring up with companies like this, because there are options, right? And you can be kind of like uh, technology agnostic, I bet, or a bit, right? Because you're like looking for what is the best thing to plug in, and especially as more and more come online, it's all the time, right? There's different models and people offering different APIs, and it's going to be kind of a race to the bottom price-wise, probably, right? But then you're balancing that with results. And the layers you put on top and what you can filter out in terms of accuracy. So if you can do a lot of the work in-house, maybe you use a sloppier model, let's say, but like it's way cheaper or something like that, right? A hundred percent. And that's the other great thing is that you can combine the latest and greatest off the shelf Mm -hmm. as opposed to trying to build it in-house. Because a small company like Andy, we wouldn't be able to go and spend $50 million on training a huge LLM, (laughs) you know? We're grateful to companies that open up their APIs and let us use that technology in in combination with our own. Yeah. I was just going to ask, because I know you mentioned toward the top of the call that when you guys originally launched, you definitely found some like mixed reactions from investors of some people being like, oh, yeah, this is the next great technology. Other people being like, would people actually use this? So I'm curious because I know from like 2020, 2021, like digital health companies, crypto companies, they didn't even have to raise. VCs were like banging down the doors, like breaking into the offices. And I'm curious what it's been like for you guys now that everyone and their mother wants to be an investor and chat GPT. Everyone's so interested in the space, it seems. Have you guys seen a ton of outreach? How has like the perception from the community sort of changed? Yeah, I think that, uh, you know, VCs see companies like Andy and it's too late to get into Google and ChatGPT and Microsoft, but it's certainly not too late to get into Andy. Yeah, we've been lucky to have a lot of interest and we're excited about the next stage of the company and, and raising the round. So would you say you're in the part where you're having to turn people down or are you like, we must select from among these amazing offers we have? Definitely it's figuring out who's the right partner for the next stage. And, you know, we have some exciting things coming up. So it's always that balancing act of being in product building mode versus being in fundraising mode. Um, And as Becca said, like, you don't necessarily have to fundraise right now because people are so excited to invest. Yeah, it's a frothy time out there. It's It's a good time to be in this business. (laughs) well angela i think that's about all the time we have today but thanks very much for joining us it's been wonderful talking to you and i hope that next time you're back you just bring andy too and then we can have andy as another guest is that you think that will be possible eventually (laughs) love it let's do it yeah All right, Becca, that was our conversation with Angela. What do you think? Do you believe in the future of AI search now any more or less than you did previously? 
I think I definitely see the use cases here for this. It is nice, especially I like their approach in the two split screen answers. So it's like, okay, here's our answer. But if you're looking to dive further, you're looking to kind of check sources there, here's like the running list on the other side, which I think is a piece that I didn't realize was missing from some of the other chatbot search assistant AI things we've popped up. But I think now that she mentioned that about Andy, I'm like, I totally see the use cases there and understand like why that was a choice to make to add that. Yeah, for sure. I don't think you're going to get the like non-hybrid, like you got to give people a bridge, right? Like you can't just go straight into the other mode. It's too much adjustment and there's too much at stake in terms of veracity and being able to check like what are your sources on this what are you actually talking about i feel like it's helpful for them too in training to be able to kind of like see where the bot is like pulling the information from to help spot holes in the system i will say i used it to look up who is the nba mvp and it said nikola Jokic, which is correct but all of the articles that cited were from 2021 which this is only correct because he's a two-time in a row MVP, but it didn't pull anything from 2022, which would be the most recent information. That's interesting. So it's interesting. So it's still right. Yeah, yeah. So maybe right despite itself in this case. Just right, because Nicole Jokic is really good at basketball and won two years in a row. But I don't know anything about sports, so you could be making all this up. You could be a chatbot right now, just inventing people's names and things and stats. And I would believe you fully, Becca. So I hope you're not doing that to me. I'm not going to check you. (laughs) (laughs) Any NBA listener knows this is true. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. (laughs) What else did you find interesting? I mean, I think it was cool that she seemed to like really, she got into this in such an unusual way, right? Like it was such a series of moves that were like, oh, wow. Like those seem really orthogonal to each other. And then culminating with meeting your co-founder in the airport and then deciding to start a company based on that kind of chance meeting. It's really interesting, right? I know. It's both interesting and how unique it is, but also so familiar in the thought of like so many successful entrepreneurs were like, yeah, I don't know. I was doing A and then I just somehow found myself in B and then all of a sudden the idea for C came up and now we're here. And so I feel like it is interesting when you get those like funky stories, but I feel like that's kind of what are the building blocks for like a strong entrepreneur who has all these like crazy backgrounds to lean on that you would never expect to help build an AI company that right. we'll find out if they do. Yeah, we will find out if they do. I mean, this is tough. This is a tough market to be in. You're signing up for a lot of very aggressive competition. And, you know, we talked a bit about how they were like a little bit ahead of the curve. And also she pulled out the classic, like, we're so happy company X, Y, and Z are in this now because it validates our approach, right? Which is like... You know, we hear that answer all the time. And it's a funny answer that really means, yeah, we're terrified of shit of (laughs) being destroyed by Google or Microsoft. I think everyone would admit if they look into their heart of hearts that that's what that answer means. But yeah, it's that I feel like is probably their biggest challenge. Right. And I do think there is value in being net new to something like that, right? Like we've seen that time Mm -hmm. and time again where a small company comes in and is competing with a large company, but because their approach is not encumbered by any legacy business goals, any legacy code, any legacy approaches, they end up having an advantage in supplanting the larger one. Mm -hmm. And I also think their approach of potentially doing like a B2B model down the line also Mm. kind of sets them apart in that way from some of the other things we've seen thus far. I mean, I don't doubt like a Microsoft or Google would eventually move into something like that. That'd be such a natural progression. But the fact that that's like seems more 
in like the near term plans for Andy makes a lot of sense because like I mean what we are talking about like searching within websites and all of that stuff you don't even need to go on Google like search is just bad everywhere yeah yeah okay I think the conversation was good I think it, we have a lot a lot of questions here on who will be winners and how and why and what the approach will be so this is like very very early I'm really curious to come back to Andy in a few years and see how they progress, if they still exist, what's going on in the space. But yeah, mm-hmm. this is a good chat and I look forward to seeing what they do next. Found is hosted by myself, managing editor Daryl Etherington and TechCrunch Plus reporter Becca Skutak. We're produced by Maggie Stamets with editing by Kel. Bryce Durbin is our illustrator. Alyssa Stringer leads audience development and Henry Pickovit manages TechCrunch's audio products. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week. 